How's it going out there? <laughs> it's the first day of spring today. <laughs> Could you tell? <clears throat> it goes a little springy this afternoon, the sun out, a little bit of warmth. It's hard work though, huh? Cultivating kindness. <laughs> It's, uh, it's been very touching for us to uh, meet with so many of you and sit in the groups and have you share, uh, share your experience so openly. It's really, a, it's really an honor to get to share this space together. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy what we, what we do here. <clears throat> And we leave home, we say, oh, I'm going on retreat. It's great, have fun, have a great time. <laughs> a different kind of fun. <laughs> one, uh, one teacher of mine used to talk about when she first started doing metta practice, she was doing walking in the parking lot, and her phrases were, I hate metta, I hate metta, I hate metta. <laughs> so by, by your laughter, I'm guessing some of you can relate. It's okay. It's okay. We we learn we learn metta by by not metta. Uh, yeah, all kinds of experiences. Sometimes feeling shut down, you know, just like cut off, like we're not getting anywhere. Uh, I came across a quote from a computer scientist who um, spoke a little piece of wisdom. He said. It, if you're not failing at least 90% of the time, you're not aiming high enough. So, you know, give yourself some leeway. And uh, just that, that reminder that even, even when it feels like we're wasting our time, like what am I doing here? Um, something's happening. If nothing else, you're cultivating patience. Seriously, it's a lot of good qualities that are cultivated in this practice. Um, so maybe some of what you've been experiencing is just feeling bored. Uh, they did a study on boredom, actually. It was uh, quite remarkable. They, they got people together and they put them in alone in a room with uh, no distractions, no phones, no reading material, nothing. They uh, called it a thinking period, a 15-minute thinking period. And they were told to just entertain themselves with their thoughts. And then afterwards, they were asked to rate how difficult it was and, and, or how enjoyable it was on these different validated scales. So uh, the outcome was fairly difficult, not so enjoyable, not surprisingly. Um, and you know, people said they'd rather entertain themselves with a puzzle or a magazine than their thoughts. So then the researchers got curious about these results and they did another experiment. And they put people again in a room, no distractions, 15 minute thinking period, same instruction, entertain yourself with your thoughts. Uh, but this time they put a little um, electrode uh, people with a button and people could shock themselves if they wanted. <laughs> uh, but before, the, before they were put in the room, they had a chance to test it out and see how it felt, the, the shock. So they knew what it was before they went in the room. <laughs> so even of the people who said that they would pay not to be shocked 25% of those who identified as women shocked themselves and two-thirds of the men shocked themselves <laughs> <laughs> rather than be alone with their thoughts the entire time <laughs> One guy shocked himself something like 90 times. <laughs> so you wonder why you're suffering. <laughs> so a few hundred years ago, the uh, philosopher and uh, scientist Pascal uh, wrote that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly alone in a room. So what are we doing here? What's it take? What's it take to be alone in a room with our thoughts? 
What's it take to do this practice? And what's it take to be human? This is what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about some of the other qualities that support this practice of loving kindness. And specifically, I want to talk about compassion and about resilience, about our willingness to feel and our courage to wake up. A good friend of mine uh, from high school, a buddy of mine, we send each other um, uh, little clips or quotes or jokes sometimes on email. He sent me this really, really touching video. It's uh, You see somebody's holding their cell phone and there's a little sparrow sitting on a rusted metal bar, winter, snow. And then you see the sparrow uh, flutter its wings and it can't get off the bar. Its little claws are frozen, frozen to the bar. And then you see this hand, this uh, sort of hefty man's hand reach out and approach the sparrow and the sparrow struggles a little and he very sort of firmly but gently grasps the sparrow and holds it and brings his hand on the on the sparrow and kind of holds it and cups his fingers around the feet and holds it there for a little bit and then the camera gets very 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 close to the feet and then you hear you hear this and then you see his breath melting the frost on the pipe, on the, on the bar, the ch- color changing, and he's breathing again, this warm air on the sparrow's feet, and then one foot, one little claw slowly starts to loosen, and then the other little claws, he's breathing, his warm air loosens, and then he lifts up the little sparrow, and he says, here we go, little birdie, go ahead and fly away, he opens his hand, Shh. the sparrow flies off. I feel like, sometimes I feel like we're that little sparrow, stuck, frozen, holding on, unable to let go. But we're also that man with a warm hand, the moist breath. So, you know, consider what did it take to free the sparrow he had to notice, right? How many times do we walk past things, just not even notice them? He's paying attention. And he had to care. He had to be willing to feel. What's it like to be that little sparrow stuck on that, on that pole? And then he actually, had to, he actually had to touch the sparrow. It had to be pretty firm if he had been kind of uh, uncertain at all, afraid to touch it, that could have been damaging to the sparrow. It might have gotten hurt. But if he'd been too forceful, he could have crushed the sparrow. So quite decisive in, in meeting the situation. Firm but gentle. He had to hold it steady against its thrashing. He also had to be willing to experience that probably, you know, wasn't very comfortable, his bare hand on a frozen metal bar, and be willing to experience some discomfort there. And then he had to give, give his very breath. I think we all have this deep yearning inside, just like that sparrow, to let go, to be free. And I think that recognizing that longing and really honoring it is one of the things that gives us the strength and the courage to do this practice. You know, to recognize it's okay. It's okay to want to be happy. It's okay to want to be free. My first metta retreat was right here in this room. I was sitting somewhere right over there. And uh, I remember the first night after getting the instructions, uh, 
catching one of the teachers out in the foyer. I was having a really hard time. I felt like I cannot do this practice. Going on, she was very kind. We went up into one of the interview rooms upstairs and said, you know, what's happening? How can I, how can I help? And it's just the tears flowing and just asking, you know, like, is it really okay for me to wish this for myself? It just didn't seem okay to say, may I be happy? May I be well? May I be peaceful? Is it really okay? Wanting to be happy doesn't need to be selfish or greedy or petty. It doesn't need to be superficial even though the whole structure of our economy uh, is based upon our desire for happiness being routed towards something superficial. It it doesn't need to mean elbowing our way to the top or selling out or compromising or pretending somehow that everything's okay when it's not. But it does mean examining the things that we've been told about what it means to be happy. You know, is it making more money, having more pleasant experiences or, or being famous or being a success in worldly terms? Is that what makes us happy? You know, look around, look inside. So with this practice, we start to see this in ourselves. We start to see that longing of the sparrow to be free, to be happy. And we start to see it in one another, that this is universal, this yearning to be happy, that we all have this deep within us and that it connects us. And when we can combine that longing, that urge with some wisdom and with a practice, with a path, it becomes a very powerful vehicle for freedom. But just like that little bird, sometimes we don't realize that we're stuck until we start suffering. We don't realize that we're not free until we try to move somewhere or let go and we realize that we can't. And this whole path begins with the acknowledgement, with the recognition of the difficult places in our lives and the willingness to feel, the courage to meet those places. Many of you have been sharing in the groups the kind of things that come up in metta practice. As we open the heart, as we have these moments that Jill talked about last night, these moments of purity, the, the things that get dredged up, the memories, the regrets, the shortcomings, maybe the way we've let ourselves down, or the way we've let others down, mistakes we've made, Maybe pain that we've caused, people we care about, or things we wish we could have done differently. We start to see all of this. We even see maybe on a deeper level, on a more existential level, the, the difficulty of being human. You know, that things change, that nothing lasts, that we're not in control. And we can't always get things the way we want them even when we do get things the way we want them, that it doesn't last, it doesn't last very long. That life's uncertain. You know, things can change like that, right? One phone call, one diagnosis, whole world upside down. And we're all vulnerable. We get sick, we grow old. We die, we lose those we love. We see this, we come in contact with this. But once we start to see it, it's like we realize that we're stuck. And then that begins the journey, the call to be free. And we start to, we start to study to see, well, what is our response? What are the ways that we respond to the suffering, to the difficulties, to the limitations, to the challenges? You know, and we have this, this myth that we're not supposed to suffer, that everything's supposed to be fine. 
that somehow if we're having a hard time, it's a personal failure. You know, that, that being sick is a mistake. That being old is, you know, growing old is somehow a failure. Dying was the ultimate failure. <laughs> and that's how crazy it is. And the responses to our own suffering internally, the, the experience we, we feel isolated, we blame ourselves, or we feel ashamed, or we feel afraid, we shrug it off. It'll be okay, it's just the past, don't worry about it. We avoid it, we try to pretend it's not there, maybe, uh, maybe we bury it, maybe we numb out, keep going. Sometimes we can do that for a lifetime where we get embittered, resentful, where we get angry or we despair, all of the ways that we get entangled, that we complicate what's already difficult enough. Or the ways we relate to others' suffering. We, we pull away or we avoid it, the awkward silences, not sure what to do. We, we try to pretend it's not there or we recoil in disgust or fear. This opposite of compassion, cruelty, which doesn't just mean will in wanting to inflict harm, it means that we are so separated that the experience of the other is so strong that we, we can't actually connect with what's happening there. Or our, our culture's obsession with youth, that we have to hide away the elderly or the sick in hospitals or homes. Unless, you know, to avoid feeling uncomfortable. Or to avoid facing the fact that we really aren't in control. And we see what is, what's the result of these kinds of responses to difficulty. How it only exacerbates it. How it only makes it worse. Or how it leaves us a very, very, very narrow space to live in. a very powerful um, teaching in the early texts where the Buddha's hanging out with some of his disciples and he asks them, he says, you know, what's the difference between someone who's really practiced and understood my teachings and those who haven't even heard it? And they said, I don't know, you know, please tell us what's the difference. He says, the difference is both people experience difficult, unpleasant things. They both experience, in this context, he's talking about physical sensations. They both experience painful physical sensations. And that's like being shot with an arrow. Everyone gets shot with an arrow in this life. No one escapes from it. But you know what the difference is? People who have studied and practiced these teachings and actually understood it, that's it. They just feel painful feelings. People who haven't studied these teachings or practiced them or understood them, you know what they do? They get out the quiver and they start shooting more arrows. Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? This is awful. How do I get rid of this? And so they shoot a second arrow and a third arrow and a fourth arrow. So these are our other responses to suffering, the second arrow, the third arrow, our reactivity around it. So instead of suffering being something that breaks us or weakens us or cripples us or puts us in a place of fear or denial, it can be a wake-up call. It can call us to look more deeply, to learn about the path, to investigate, to find balance, to actually come to peace with what's been and what is. It can actually be a, a gateway to more freedom when we're willing to feel, when we have the courage to meet it. Then the suffering has the possibility of opening the heart, of connecting us with something deeper. James Baldwin wrote, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read 
It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all people who were alive or who had ever been alive. So the path begins with this acknowledgement of the problem of human suffering and the willingness to encounter it and the courage to face it, to feel it. At the same time, it's important not to demonize the other responses. It's important not to make an enemy out of our habitual responses, that actually that's part of how we learn. Someone was talking about doing metta for their father who's ill and has a lot of physical pain and struggling with, you know, how can I wish may you be healthy, may you be free from physical suffering? He's not, and he's not going to be. You know, does that mean I want him to die? And seeing also the the yearning for it to be different, that desire to control it. And it's through seeing those places that we start to realize, we start to understand what is it to be free? from physical suffering. We all get shot with that first arrow. So what does it mean to be free from physical suffering? To not shoot the second arrow, to not be lost in it, to not be oppressed by it. And then we find, we find the balance. We find that space of being able to just offer the wish, may you find freedom. May your heart be free from physical suffering. I, uh, I spent a lot of time at uh, some of the monasteries in one of the traditions that are connected to this practice and actually ordained as a novice for a while. And uh, I was training up at a monastery in Canada a few years ago. And um, I've had uh, different health problems since I was 25 when I was living on staff here. I, uh, I got a diagnosis of a chronic inflammatory disease and um, naively thought, uh, sitting in my room, meditating after receiving the di- diagnosis, oh boy, wow, now my practice is really going to take off. <laughs> so uh, I'm at this monastery and there's, um, there's a lot of Lyme disease in the area there. And um, I was very uh, worried and concerned about getting Lyme disease because of this inflammatory condition I have. It would be very dangerous for me, and I can't really take antibiotics without exacerbating the condition I have and so forth. So I spent the good part, a greater part of a year there. And uh, about a week before I was going to leave, I woke up about 4.30 in the morning with a funny sensation in my leg in bed and I'd been bitten by a tick before while I was on staff here and uh, I knew right away that there was a tick in my leg and sure enough I I, you know hit a double whammy I got Lyme disease and babesiosis co-infection and thus began a several years journey of being quite sick and taking lots of different drugs and doing all kinds of different treatments. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have had, you know, many years of practice already. Um, And having had a teacher who told me in the very first few weeks of my practice, uh, one very important piece of advice, he said, life is your best teacher. Let life be your teacher. And so I met, I met it as a teacher. 
But that doesn't mean I still didn't rail against it, that I still didn't feel afraid, I didn't resist it, uh, I, you know, play out the, the 24 hours beforehand and think, what could I have done differently? I didn't get depressed or overwhelmed. Uh, but it taught me a tremendous amount. I'm quite well now, thankfully. Uh, but it you know, taught me a lot about how to meet difficulty and how to find release through acceptance rather than resistance. And really how to open to pain, how to open to fear, how to open to uncertainty. And through that, I found great strength, deep compassion, and many gifts the ability to see my connection with others through the vulnerability. Instead of envying others who are healthy, to see that we're actually connected in our vulnerability. When we meet difficulty, something beautiful can happen. We have the possibility of being ennobled by it, of of being opened up to a profound sense of connection and compassion. So check it out, you know, here on retreat, when you're out there in the world, when you, when you find yourself struggling or judging yourself or spinning out, instead of adding more on, what would it be like to just stop? Oh, this is suffering. How am I responding? Can there be a willingness to feel? a courage to meet this. And then it becomes a doorway to compassion, to wisdom. And it's the compassion, the compassion is that movement of the heart toward rather than away from the suffering, toward the suffering, to see if we can help, to see what's needed. Just like that man with the sparrow, the movement towards the suffering to see if he could help. Not to fix it. If he had tried to fix it, he, he, he probably would have been too forceful, right? There's the tenderness there. But compassion needs strength. Otherwise we fall in, it needs a kind of resilience. There've been a lot of questions about how do I know What's the difference between falling in and having compassion for something? What's the difference between, between genuine grief, grieving, and being kind of flooded or overwhelmed? It's that, it's that near miss of compassion that we're trying to distinguish. The, the near miss of compassion is this sense of sinking like an overwhelm or sometimes like a despair or even burnout. One of the ways we can tell the difference is, is how does it feel to be in it? When it's the near enemy, there's often a tension or a friction or, or kind of like a grinding or a spinning or a sinking or an addictive quality to it. When it's grieving, there's a bittersweetness to it. And then the result, what's the result? The result is that we feel lighter. There's a sense of wholeness or integration. Some sense of understanding or relief on the other side. Some of the work that I do out in the world is uh, training educators to teach mindfulness to children. And there's some very beautiful stories that I get to hear. Uh, One story of a teacher um, teaching mindfulness to a nine-year-old who uh, suffers from autism and uh, hearing from the mother and that they've been working a lot to be able to notice and recognize emotions in the body when they arise. And then the mother reported back to the teacher saying that recently when the child had become, uh, the default reaction to uh, most emotions was getting agitated and angry. And so instead the mother reported that recently uh, he cried when he was 
sad at home. And even though uh, he was crying, she felt so overjoyed because he said, I can feel the tears on my face. I notice that I feel sad. That's compassion. That's, that's the, this grieving, this ability to grieve. He was feeling it, allowing himself to feel it. Another story of a, of a young girl who's, uh, who had lost her baby sister, third grader. And unfortunately, the mother had, for some reason, forbidden the child to talk about it. I, ostensibly to maybe try to protect her from the pain. But as you can imagine, that was not the result. The child became withdrawn and fairly silent and quiet and miserable during the next year of school. And so they had uh, taught some lessons on emotions. And in one of the lessons, uh, the children get journals and they uh, uh, can draw uh, in the journal. And so this lesson, at the end of the lesson, it said, draw a picture of yourself and color in where you feel afraid or angry or happy or peaceful or any emotions you'd like to show me. And so she drew a picture of a little girl and then there's a gravestone with some flowers on it. And then there's an arrow and the little girl has tears and there's an arrow pointing to her heart. And it said in the journal, I felt lonely because I was shy of things and because my baby sister died. But ever since I've been noticing, I got better. Ever since I've been noticing, I got better. It was that willingness to feel, the courage to just meet what's happening. I read a book recently called The Elephant Whisperer. And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's the story of a man named Lawrence Anthony who grew up in Zululand in South Africa and at a certain point had an opportunity to buy a very large game reserve that had been a dream of his. And so he established this game reserve called Tula Tula. And one day he received a phone call from an elephant welfare organization saying that they had some troublesome elephants, a herd of elephants, and did he want them? And to have someone offering you a herd of elephants for a game <laughs> reserve is like a goal, you know, it's, it's like an amazing blessing. Like, oh my God, are you kidding me? So he, but he asked, you know, what's going on? What's the situation? So apparently um, they had a tendency to break out of reserves. <laughs> and the owner wanted to get rid of them because the matriarch apparently was this amazing escape artist and had worked out how to break out of electric fences. She would twist the wire around her tusks until it snapped to short the fence. Or if she couldn't do that, she would just take the pain of the shock and charge through it to break her family out. And they had broken out so many times that the current game reserve was ready to put them down, to shoot them. And so this was a last-ditch effort. And this uh, man... Uh, uh, Lawrence Anthony, who ran Tula Tula, had a reputation for having a way with animals. So he decided to take them. The elephants arrive late one night in a transport truck. They have all sorts of problems getting the truck in, and they get them in, and it turns out that the matriarch and her daughter, her baby daughter, had been shot and killed uh, before the herd was transported. And it was unclear if it was unintentional or intentional, you know, if they were wanting to, uh, for some reason, just, you know, kill the, the matriarch. So these elephants arrive traumatized, uh, you know, um, and they get into the reserve. And the way that you orient elephants to a reserve is you put them in what's called a boma, is the word they have in Zulu, which is, um, 
it's a smaller enclosed area with an electrified wire fence. So they get the elephants in the boma. And the very first night they get there and uh, the eldest uh, uh, elephant herds are matriarchal. And so uh, the, the eldest female elephant, whose name was Nana, they called her, um, walks the perimeter of the whole electric fence at first, sniffing and feeling it out. And that very first night, she breaks out and the herd gets loose. So they, uh, after a number of complications and helicopter and tracking, they find the herd and they, get the, they bring them back and they get them back in the boma. And Lawrence Anthony is trying to figure out, what am I going to do? And uh, he writes, oh, so this is interesting, how they get out the first night. They somehow found that the, ge- they found the generator that powered the electric fence around the reserve. After trampling it like a tin can, they had pulled the concrete embedded fence post out of the ground like matchsticks and headed north back to their home. Their home was to the north. So he says, then in a flash came the answer. I would live with the herd. To save their lives, I would stay with them. We would feed them. I would talk to them. But most importantly, I would be with them day and night. We all had to get to know each other. So the first night, he gets a call on the CB, he has guards watching. He's camped out there in his, uh, tr- in his van with uh, his, uh, another ranger. He gets a call that the elephants are all amassed at the northern border of the Boma at 4.45 a.m. And so he approaches and this is what he writes. And, and Nana, the eldest, is standing there leading the herd. It was 4.45 a.m. and I was standing in front of Nana an enraged wild elephant pleading with her in desperation. Both of our lives depended on it. The only thing separating us was an 8,000 volt electric fence that she was preparing to flatten and make her escape. Nana, the matriarch of the herd, tensed her enormous frame and, and flared her ears. Don't do it, Nana, I said calmly as I could. She stood there motionless but tense. The rest of the herd froze. This is your home now, I continued. Please don't do it, girl. I felt her eyes boring into me. They'll kill you all if you break out. This is your home now. You don't need to run anymore. Suddenly, the absurdity of the situation struck me. Here I was, in pitch darkness, talking to a wild female elephant with a baby the most dangerous possible combination, as if we were having a friendly chat. But I meant every word. You will all die if you go. Stay here. I will be here with you. And it's a good place. She took another step forward. I could see her tense up again, preparing to snap the electric wire and be out, the rest of the herd smashing after her in a flash. I was in their path, and would only have seconds to scramble out of their way and climb the nearest tree. I wondered if I would be fast enough to avoid being trampled. Possibly not. Then something happened between Nana and me, some tiny spark of recognition flashing for the briefest of moments. Then it was gone. Nana turned and melted into the bush. The rest of the herd followed. I couldn't explain what happened between us, but it gave me the first glimmer of hope since the elephants had first thundered into my life. And the book goes on to describe his relationship with the elephants and how he's able to develop enough trust and safety with them that they do make the reserve their home. But sometimes our compassion needs to be like that. It's not just like the sparrow on the fence. Sometimes we need to stand up and shout in front of a wild raging elephant and say, it's okay. You don't have to run anymore. You can stay here. I'm here with you.
And that takes strength, that takes resilience. So we need, we need more than just compassion. We need metta, we need kindness. We need mudita. We need things that strengthen the heart and joy strengthens the heart. This ability to celebrate, to take in the good, to celebrate the good with others. So letting, letting the, the beauty of nature in, like I spoke about the other day, letting yourself be touched by life, the sun on the snow, or the pine needles glistening. The simple things. A good friend of mine has a, a one-year-old baby daughter and they sent me a little video of her um, in her little boots in the rain, stepping in the puddles and trying to grab at the, the raindrops falling in the puddles and just her little body exploring the rain. It's just so joyful to watch just the exploration and letting ourselves be nourished and touched by things like that. Or seeing a bird fly and just watching it, letting it touch you. Uh, Joseph and Sharon and some of the uh, elders in our Western insight tradition here tell the story of asking Manindraji, who I've spoken of before on this retreat, in Bodhgaya in the early years asking him, Manindraji, why do you practice meditation? And expecting you know, some kind of profound answer about liberation or awakening or the heart and compassion. And, and his answer was much more humble. He said, I practice meditation so that when I'm walking down the road, I don't miss the little purple flowers by the roadside. To notice things, to really take them in. To let ourselves be nourished by our friends. By community. To let yourself be nourished being here by one another. You know, sometimes it can feel quite lonely being on retreat, even though there's a hundred people here. No one's looking at each other, no one's smiling, you can't talk to anyone. But if you know how to pay attention, there's a lot of connection. When you sit here in the hall, before you sit, open your eyes. Take in the people around you. Recognize that we all are doing our best to show up, to have that willingness to feel, that courage to meet what's happening. During the work period, look around. Notice everyone working together to clean the center, someone vacuuming, someone wiping, someone washing, someone chopping. Notice the staff doing things in the background, working together. You start to feel the sense of togetherness. Or if you, you know, if you're not allergic to chanting from the synagogue or the church, (laughs) you come to the chanting and feel the harmony of the voices. Feel the connection in the chanting. Take it in. This this capacity for connection and, and for joy it's, uh, it goes beyond just us humans. It's, it's, it's in us. It's in the limbic brain. So in the other book I mentioned this morning or yesterday, um, this book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, about these three different groups of animals, uh, there's stories about how the researchers could tell when the elephants were happy. And they greet each other and they could, just, they could just see and feel it. Or the, or the wolves, every time a wolf pack would come back together and licking each other and rolling over each other and just the joy. Anyone who has a dog, you know, you see that, you feel that, that joy of connection, celebrating. Now this willingness to feel, it's innate, it's in us. And that compassion is innate. It's in us. I'll read you another story. You've got your tissues. <laughs> so this is a story of Washoe, who was a chimpanzee. And in the 1960s, these two researchers and uh, 
their students who were married raised uh, raised a chimpanzee in a family setting, and uh, and they taught her sign language, and she became world famous. Her name was Washoe. And she later then taught other chimpanzees to sign. And uh, in 1982, Washoe uh, gave birth to two babies. But she lost both of them. One to a heart defect and one to an infection. Now, later... Uh, one of the researchers who was there, a woman by the name of Cat Beach, became pregnant. And Washoe uh, expressed great interest in her belly, signing the word baby. Beach had a miscarriage. And this is one of the other researchers writing about the incident. Knowing that Washoe had lost two of her own children, Cat decided to tell her the truth. My baby died. Cat signed to her. Washoe looked down to the ground. Then she looked into Cat's eyes and signed, Cry, touching her cheek just below her eye. <clears throat> When Cat had to leave that day, Washoe wouldn't let her go. Please, person, hug, she signed. So it goes deep, this willingness to feel, this compassion, this care for one another. It crosses the boundaries of species. In, uh, <clears throat> I'm so sorry I'm making you cry so much. <laughs> I'm not getting through either, don't worry. <laughs> In uh, March of 2012, uh, Lawrence Anthony, the man who owned Tula Tula Reserve, uh, died. And by the time he passed away, he had two herds of elephants that uh, lived in safety in Tula Tula, and the reserve has, had expanded to thousands of square miles. He worked very closely with some of the Zulu chiefs and the surrounding land to unite all of the bordering land into a very, very, very large game reserve. And uh, because he had grown up in Zululand and spoke the language, he was able to uh, understand the culture and work very closely with not only the chieftains, but also uh, the village people, the villagers, and the different kind of contingents of people who were vying for the land and had a distrust of white people and the game reserves. So in March of uh, 2012, he died. And uh, 12 hours later, from hundreds of miles away, the two herds of elephants arrived at his house. And elephants are known to mourn their dead, to visit a place where an elephant has died, or even to, if the uh, remains are there, to with their, the tip of their trunk, which is very sensitive, um, to caress the edge of a jawbone, which would, would have been a place where they had touched each other many, many, many times. And so, uh, without knowing, that he had died, all of the herds of elephants, it took them 12 hours to make the journey, came together and converged on his house and stayed there for two days after he passed away, honoring his life. So what's our usual response to suffering? Ever since I've been noticing, I'm feeling better. Please, person, hug. Two herds of elephants coming from hundreds of miles away to mourn, to honor the life of someone who saved them.
<clears throat> and it's not just the suffering here. We can sit on this retreat and think, what am I doing here? May I be happy? May I be well? You know, we can feel like, is this selfish? What good is this doing anyone? With so much pain in the world, looking around at the planet, at the environments, the animals that are suffering, or refugees, or violence and war, or even like the healthcare system, people who can't get the care that they need, or hate crimes. But what good are we if we're overwhelmed? How can we help if we're burnt out, if we're drowning, or if we're numb, if we're cut off, if we're frozen on that pipe, unable to move, like the sparrow? So this practice is about fundamentally changing our base, the basis of our relationship to the world, changing the basis of our relationship to ourself and others, to be able to come from love, to be able to see more clearly, to be able to let our heart be moved naturally to compassion. I want to end with a quote from Joanna Macy, one of the great leaders and teachers of our time, deep ecologist, Dharma teacher. She says, we are called to not run from the discomfort and to not run from the grief or the feelings of outrage or even the fear. If we can be fearless, if we can be with our pain, it turns. It doesn't stay static. It only doesn't change if we refuse to look at it. But when we look at it, when we take it in our hands, when we can just be with it and keep breathing, then it turns. It turns to reveal its other face. And the other face of our pain for the world is our love for the world, our absolutely inseparable connectedness with life. Let's sit together for a few moments.